0: This morning will be verses one through five. Now, I'm continuing a series on discipleship, what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we examined how our commitment to Christ will bring us into conflict with the world. And specifically, two weeks ago, we examined the issue of life, the sanctity of life, because that's one of the areas where we see our beliefs as Christians come into conflict with those of the world. And this morning I want to address another area where this conflict between the church and the world is highlighted and that is the area of sexual ethics and gender identity. Now I'm under no illusion that a 30-40 minute sermon is going to answer all your questions. In fact to be upfront, today is going to be a little bit more of a teaching message. There are times that I preach and the majority of the time I just work my way verse by verse through a text to seek to understand it and apply it. Today however is going to be a little bit more of a teaching session so I won't be sticking as closely with the text but my hope is to bring in some ideas to help you get a framework for what's happened in our culture and then Lord willing be better equipped to go out into this world as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to point people to the gospel. So to that end, our text comes from Revelation chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. Follow with me as I read this passage. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority. The earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons. A haunt for every unclean spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture that your Spirit inspired, and as we seek to understand the world, I pray, Father, that all of this will be to your glory, that you would work within us, that we would have a greater passion to share the gospel, a greater commitment to demonstrate the love of Christ, and a better understanding of the need for a Savior. For it is in His name that we pray. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar with the game Jenga. Up on the screens, you're going to see a picture of this game. It's really very simple. You build a stack of blocks like that, and then the players take turns removing one of the blocks until you are the player that removes that final block, and the tower collapses. And everybody yells out, Jenga! Jenga! In many ways, this is a picture of what I feel like is happening in our culture. One by one, the blocks that give stability to any civilization are being removed. And I fear the outcome will not be good. Now, there's no doubt that we as believers are shocked at the speed with which cultural change is taking place. But we should not be surprised. We are warned all throughout the scripture of what happens when a culture rejects God. Revelation is a book written about the past, the present, and the future. I know many, whenever I mentioned turning to Revelation, there was a sense of, oh no, he's turning to Revelation. And for others, there was a sense of, yes, Revelation. Well, I believe Revelation is very pertinent to us today. Because it's a book that's not just written about what's going to happen one day in the future. It's a book about what has happened in the past, what is happening in the present for God's people, and the future. The book of Revelation was written to encourage believers. The church that first read this letter, the Revelation, was a church being persecuted. And the temptation was for the church to either go along with the culture so that they are not suffering in any way, or to compromise their faith by rejecting it completely. So the book of Revelation was written to believers to say, stand firm. Be aware that persecution is occurring. In fact, I think the whole outline, the whole point of Revelation is summed up at the very beginning of the book in Revelation chapter 1 verse 5. You'll see it up on the screen. This serves as the model for Revelation. Revelation. And from Jesus Christ. Now look at the three ways that Jesus is described. The faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Those three descriptions of our Lord serve the table, as it were, to help us to be prepared. Because first of all, the temptation when persecution occurs is not to be a faithful witness. Well, guess what? Our Lord has already gone before us, and he has been a faithful witness. We follow his steps. But then the question comes, well, if I'm a faithful witness, I may die for my faith. I may be killed for my faith. Now, quite frankly, that's not something that we worry about here. But there are many of our brothers and sisters around the world that this very day as they worship, they know that because of their faith in Christ, they could die. So to those who become fearful, guess who Jesus is? The firstborn of the dead. He's conquered death. You don't have to fear death. So even if it costs your life, you follow the one who has been a faithful witness and he has risen from the dead. And just in case the early church that reads this becomes afraid of the governing authorities, if they become fearful of Nero or Domitian, depending on when you date Revelation, and they're scared of the earthly king, guess what? He is the ruler of kings on earth. Nero's not in control. God is. It's a reminder to us that we are to follow the example of Jesus. Now, all throughout the book of Revelation, different images are used to convey truth. And in chapter 18, in fact, in chapter 17, the city of Babylon is used to help us to understand our call as believers in the past, present, and the future. Now, the imagery that is used in verse 2 to describe Babylon, and look at it there. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, is language that was used in the book of Isaiah and the book of Jeremiah to describe the literal Babylon that was one day located, used to be located in southern Iraq. Here in Revelation 18, it's being used to describe the Roman Empire. You see, in every generation, in every century, there's Babylons. Because Babylon is that city, nation, or culture that rises up against God, that rages against God, that rejects God. It was Babylon in the Old Testament. It was Rome in the New Testament. So today the question is, Where's the Babylon? And by the way, what verse 2 does is it pulls back the curtain and says, in case you are wondering what's going on behind the scenes, what makes Babylon Babylon, it's demonic. There's the rejection of God there. Now, Babylon will always be defined by two characteristics. You see these in verse 3. These are descriptions that were used in the Old Testament and they are used now. Or when, or when John wrote this. Notice he says, the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. There's the first mark. The second one is found at the end of the verse. The merchants of the earth have grown rich in the power of her luxurious living. Babylon, no matter the time, no matter the culture, will always be characterized by two things. Gross sexual immorality and greed. Love of money will become overtaking to any Babylon, as will the love of sexual immorality. So if the question was put to me, are we living in Babylon today? My response would be, look around and you decide. The response of Christians is very interesting. You see it in verse 4. The voice from heaven says, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Now, the call to come out here is not the call to flee the city because destruction's coming. There's a mixture of tenses. Notice in verse 2 fallen, fallen, that's past tense. That's a way of saying the judgment of Babylon here and the judgment of Babylon in every generation is certain. But to come out of her is present tense. Judgment's sure. So, how are we to respond? This is not a call for us to withdraw into some holy Christian compound so we're not, not in any way in contact with the world. How can we be light if we do that? How can we fulfill the Great Commission? Go into all the nations, just don't associate with them or talk with them, and make disciples. Disciples. So you have to understand this call to come out is not a call that we are to to separate and shield ourselves off. This call, when he says come out of her, is so that we will live as a holy people. Thereby we will be different from the world because we are committed to Jesus Christ and seeking him. Light is most needed in the darkness. This is a call for us to be aware that we do not come to share in the sins of sexual immorality or greed. The hot spot today is more focused on the issue of sexual ethics. It's here that the flame is burning its most intense. It's here that I believe persecution of the church in the United States will occur because of our stance on sexual ethics. Our brothers and sisters in Canada are already facing this to an extent. Legislation was passed there I believe a year and a half ago legislation that was designed to protect the freedom of hom- the homosexual and transgendered community but at the same time it curtails the expression if not represses religious liberty and not only is this heat felt in the halls of the legislature this topic is felt around dinner tables at home as parents and grandparents as you talk with your children your teenagers your grandchildren and as you find out they're dealing with things that you and I never had to deal with or question the reality is this issue is not far from any of us. So how can we come out and still be a witness? How can we heed what is written in verse 4 and be a witness? I want to use as a model something that Mark Twain wrote. When he was reminiscing on his days as a riverboat captain and he was being trained, he was on the bridge one night and it was very dark. Because the moonlight was sporadic, the shadows that were cast on the the sides of the river made it hard to navigate, hard to see. So he asked the captain, how do you steer on a night like this? The captain said, you have to understand the river. You have to have studied the banks of the river to know its shape so you'll know how to steer the boat. I want to follow that model. I want to help us to understand the shape of the river we're in so that we can understand better how we can steer and point people to Jesus. I want us to be like the men of Issachar. They are described in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Of Issachar, look how they are described, this tribe. Men who had understanding of the times. We need to have understanding of the times. Why? For the men of Issachar, it was so they would to know what Israel ought to do. We need understanding of the times so we will know what we ought to do. So let's just start at the foundational point. I think Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who was a Russian dissident who spent time in a gulag in Siberia for his stance for freedom, when he was given the, uh, the address for the Templeton Prize in 1983, said these words. Now, he was describing Soviet Russia, but it's apropos for today. Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this has happened. In many ways, that can sum up where we stand. It's been said that nature abhors a vacuum. In other words, nature doesn't like empty spaces. Something will always follow up, fall into or fill up an empty space. You know that to be true. Think about the last time you cleaned out your garage. What happened three months later? It's filled up again, isn't it? Nature hates empty spaces. The same is true on an ideological level. If God is removed, then the question is what takes his place? We will always look to something for God, it's something to be a, a moral compass, as it were. And today, I believe the answer to this question what has taken his place is this. You'll see it up on the screen self is now at the center, the individual. It's not God who determines truth, it's the individual. In fact, it's been said that the maxim for today is this that each individual has the right to define his or her own existence. Self is God. You determine your reality, you determine who you are, what you are, and what, excuse me, what you want to become. Now, there's nothing surprising here for the Christian. Once again, while we may be shocked at the rapidity with which it has occurred, we knew it would happen. Because look at this from Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 on the screen. This is in the, in the Garden of Eden. When Satan tempts Adam and Eve, look what he says. For God knows that when you eat of it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will be like him. You will be a God. That's what has happened now. We worship the God of self. You See, this is what brings us back to an illustration from two weeks ago. There were a group of kids in your neighborhood that decided they wanted to play football. One group goes home and they grab the, the pin-skin oblong ball that we play here in America. But the other group goes and they grab a soccer ball, which is football to the majority of the world. And they show up in your backyard and try to play those two different games in the same yard. It's not going to work, is it? There's going to be conflict. You're playing by two different rules. So where we are is this. As Christians, we say God is sovereign. God is in control. But the world says, to use this language, it is the psychological inner self that is in control. The psychological inner self, who I am, who I perceive myself to be, who I think I am. And because the inner psychological life is the basis for identity now, Any speech or action that harms the psychological self is to be avoided. In other words, if we don't use the language to reflect how a person perceives themselves, we could be doing irreparable psychological harm in the view of our culture. That's why the debate's raging over pronouns. How to refer to people. Our language is breaking down at a very basic level because of this. Now, there are other factors that come into play on this. And there's a long history behind each of these. So I'm just giving kind of the tip of the iceberg. There are three factors that flow into how people understand themselves today. The first is this, okay, self's at the center. The first thing that influences our identity today in our culture is sexuality. Carl Truman in his book, The Rise and the Triumph of the Modern Self, describes our culture by saying these words today. Sexuality is that which lies at the very heart of what it means to be an authentic person. The key question asked by each human at some point in life is, who am I? The answer in our culture today is this. You are whoever you define yourself to be. Homosexual, male, female, non-binary. It's all up to you. You determine that. So desire has now turned into personhood. Our identity now is connected to sexuality, heterosexual, homosexual, and all different types of gender expressions. That's wrapped up in understanding who you are, and that's why the issue of sex has become so crucial to our culture. So important because that is now how people identify who they are at their very core. Sex has been elevated to the status of a God because it identifies our identity now a second thing that factors in and, and hold on to, to your chair with this one give me a second to explain is this you'll see it up on the screen deconstruction now I know you're thinking I did not show up to church for a, a lecture today on deconstructionism and modern philosophy but here it is nonetheless this is very important to understand and in a moment I hope to explain how it's connected to people's view of their selves But let me explain what deconstruction is. Deconstruction on one level is what it says. It's the tearing down of something. The presupposition or the the preconceived idea today in our culture is this. Those in power are by nature oppressive. If you are in a position of power, there's oppression that is occurring. Whether you mean to or not, you're oppressive because you have power and there are always people underneath that. Therefore, history and tradition are made and written by the oppressors, okay? So the history we hold to, the traditions, sexual traditions that we hold to, sexual mores, if you want to use the sociological language, are determined by those who are oppressing different groups. Therefore, sexual norms, such as heterosexual or homosexual, gender identities were established by those in power and are therefore oppressive. Now, what's the only way to respond to oppression? It's to seek emancipation. So the only way then to be free from the oppression of the powers that have formed tradition and history is to break free from that tradition. So what does that have to do with identity? For most of us in here, that just seems like sociological mumbo jumbo but this is the way it plays out you know it is difficult enough being a teenager but today being a teenager also means that if you are not questioning your gender or sexual identity you are simply accepting what the oppressors have told you may not be taught but that's what's in the air so now the norm What's considered normal is to question these things, to experiment, to find out who you are. You're considered abnormal if you're not. That comes from this idea of deconstruction. Push the boundaries, which leads to a third factor that moves into this idea of self. After sexuality, deconstruction, in other words, you've got to push the boundaries, you've got to experiment, is seeking societal approval. One of the questions that I've heard a lot is, well, why does this have to be so in our face? I mean, if people want to make choices to do things, fine, but why does it have to be so in our face? And the reason is that the idea of personal authenticity, in other words, who you are at your different, d- deepest level, is found and must be expressed in public performance. In other words, I cannot be who I am unless I am able to be that all the time and gain acceptance by society around us in other words I must be outwardly who I am and if society represses that it's simply deconstructionism it is simply those in power trying to repress who I am now everyone desires authenticity all of us do we want to be who we are the question is how do we define who we are but we cannot escape the fact that God made us to be in community so at whatever level we are at in this, we are always seeking the approval of society. Plus, it's the idea that if society does not approve, then I'm suffering persecution at their hands. Now, let me try to explain this dynamic with a very simple illustration I think we can all relate to in some way. We talk about individual expressionism, and one of the ways that people do that has been and always will be, I think, the clothes they wear. Okay? Okay. Parents, have you ever had that discussion with your children? I want to wear this. No, you're not wearing that. Well, this is who I am. This is me. I want to express me. The interesting thing is that in expressing individualism, we always gravitate to those who dress the same way we do. I think back to my high school days. I can still remember different groups that were in our high school. Different groups that expressed their individuality in different ways. There was the blue jean jacket group. Guess what they wore most of the time? They were expressing their individuality. Then there were the preppies. Yes, there were the preppies, Biff and Muffy, dressed a certain way. That was their individuality, but it was always addressed and expressed in community. That's what's happening in our society now with these things. So these three things are shaping the course of the river self's God self is shaped and identified now by sexuality the idea that we must must not only question tradition and history but tear it down and the idea of societal approval to vindicate who I am so that no psychological harm is done to self now what do we do I don't claim to have all the answers it's difficult to navigate this but I at least want to give some things to help you think through what our response ought to be how do we navigate this river First is this. I think a good point is just acknowledge the different starting points. We need to be having conversations with those who disagree with us. And I'm not talking about debates in the halls of of Washington. Quite frankly, I'm becoming a little cynical that any change is ever going to come out of Washington, whether it be legislative or morally. True change is going to occur as we get back to the grassroots of talking with one another, even those we disagree with. I'll never forget about eight years ago, I was at a meeting with about 200 other pastors where a member of the Alliance Defense Fund was giving a lecture. He was talking about the divisions in our society, divisions that have now magnified. And he asked this question after about 200 pastors, how many of you pastors in the last six months have sat down and had a discussion, a true discussion with someone that is ideologically opposed to you? In other words, have you really sat down and had coffee with somebody you disagree with? About three raised their hand. Problem is, is that we have turned this idea of talking into what we see on TV and talk radio shows instead of really sitting down and talking with our neighbor. Now, in doing this, I think it's wise just to acknowledge up front. We're at different starting points. You believe that you have the right to determine reality. I follow God and I believe I have the right to determine, or not I, but God determines reality Now let's see, how did you get to where you are? Here's where, where I believe this, and one smart way to go about this is to take things to their logical conclusion. Example is this. Today ethics is based on feeling, okay? That self, how I feel determines who I am, and who I am determines what I do. So feeling is now determining ethics. So the question is, how far do we push that? In other words, where do you draw the line? There are things that are still sexually taboo in our culture. The question then is why? For us as believers, we can say because God has set the boundaries. That's it. But for those who say that feeling determines ethics and morality, there's really no answer. Because how do you determine if one person's feelings or desires are legitimate and another's isn't if you have no standard. So eventually the idea that ethics and morality are based on feeling and identity will end up to collapse. It's like a contractor building a house and using two different standards of measurement. You can't build one part of the house using 12 inches as a foot and another part using 15 inches as a foot. It won't stand. So in this conversation, we say, how do we determine that? Now, some will answer like this. They'll say, but I understand what you're saying, but... But now come on now, didn't Christians one time hold to the Jim Crow laws and allow racism based upon the Bible, see where it gets you? And we need to upfront acknowledge that, yes, that had happened, but it was based on poor interpretation and misapplication of the Bible, so we come to this second truth. In fact, that's a great segue to get to this. Second thing we need to do is this upon the screen, you'll see it. The second thing in navigating this is to recognize that our identity is found in the image of God. Remember, the whole question's identity. That's at the root of all the sexual confusion we have today. Who am I? Is my, my identity based on whether I have feelings of attraction for the same sex or not? Or what gender am I? We go back to this truth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That both are made in the image of God. It's his image that defines us. It's not our desires. Not even our gender. Both male and female are made in the image of God and have equal value before God. And certainly not our color. We're all made in God's image. Every one of us. And it's not just a part of us that's God's image. Our very being. That's who we are. And it is dangerous to base our identity on anything other than God. Because if that happens, that identity will eventually fail us. God created male and female. They are not social constructs. Which then leads to the third thing. As we engage in discussion, we must act with kindness and compassion. I recognize that some that see this will feel like I'm being hateful, and that is not my intent. We must go above board in being kind because our goal is to lead people to Jesus. Jesus. There's an old proverb. It's not in the scripture, but it's a proverb that I think is true. Don't cut off a person's nose and then give them a rose to smell. We need to recognize that there are people we want to reach for Jesus Christ that are convinced that the church hates them. We must change that. Now, understand that being kind and compassionate to those that disagree with you is not in any way approving of behavior. Sometimes I think as a church, we're embarrassed by the fact that Jesus ate with sinners. It would have made things so much easier, wouldn't it, if Jesus had just said, nope, I'm not going to your house till you get your act straight. And then I realized that means Jesus would have never eaten with me. It means we must engage with people. Discuss things with them. Even when we disagree on issues, we must prove the truth of the gospel by living it out. And to get away from the notion, if I'm kind to someone, that means I'm agreeing with their behavior, not at all. It means you're demonstrating Jesus to them. Because as I said, our goal is this number four, we want to point to Jesus in the gospel. You say, what does this have to do with desires? You know, our point is not to get a person to change desires. That's in God's hands. The reality is there are sinful desires we all have, every one of us, that we may carry with us till the day we die. The question is, are we going to walk in obedience to God or not? Desires may come and go. The issue is obedience. What that means is this, that we move away from that idea that sexuality defines our identity and we say our identity is defined by Jesus Christ and the fact we are made in the image of God. Because what that means is that we start. We need to realize something. It's very easy for us to fall into the thinking that, well, sex is so crucial to our identity that without it we are less than human. Think with me for just a moment about that thinking. Sexuality has become so central to our identity That without it we are less than human Jesus Christ never married That means Jesus And I want to speak just very candidly here Jesus never had sex Does that mean he was less than human? No Jesus lived his life as a single man Before God Doing the Father's will What that means for us is that as a church, we hold up God's standard. If you're single, chastity, purity. That's God's will. If you're married, faithfulness in marriage. And marriage is defined in the Scripture as between one man and one woman. We hold that up. We hold up that in the womb, God makes male and female. And when God made male and female, He said it was very good. And when we meet those that are confused. We speak the truth in love. With compassion and kindness. To point them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now I know this doesn't answer a lot of questions. And may even create more. But I hope if anything it at least gives us a framework. To understand the world. And our calling within it. I want to ask you if you will. To please bow your heads with me. Father. The situation in our world is very challenging, to say the least. But, Lord, you know that. You're sovereign over all things. And I pray, Lord, that you will help us to respond, Lord, with truth, compassion, and kindness. That we may show them that that are opposed to us. That we may show one another the love of Jesus Christ. Father, we recognize that it's challenging to be a believer today. But, Father, help us to do so. Just as the church has done for two millennia, standing as light in the darkness, proclaiming the gospel, speaking the truth in love and acting with compassion. Let that be said of us in the name of Jesus. Amen.